Hello and welcome. You're listening to the 2D 3D podcast, episode one. They drew as they pleased. An interview with Disney animation historian Didier Gez. Didier was kind enough to join me on the podcast as our first guest. We talk about his new book, his work as an animation historian, and gain insights into the lives of some of the first concept artists ever at the Walt Disney Studios. The sound quality of the call isn't the greatest, but I hope you'll enjoy the interview nonetheless. Thanks. So, Didier, you were born in Paris, I believe. Yes, that's right. That's right. I was um, born and raised in Paris.、Mm-hmm. And you've been doing research for Disney since you were a teenager, and you also run the Disney History blog. Can you tell us a bit about how that started and how you came into doing that? Yes, that, that's right. I, I started really,、uh, I think, very young,、uh, being passionate about Disney, and then、uh, I realized that what I was、uh, even more passionate about was was the history of, of Disney. Uh, and so,、um, when I was about 16,、um, I was、um, living、uh, in, in Paris again after having spent a few years in, in Geneva, Switzerland. And when、uh, I was back in Paris, I realized that Disney had just、uh, bought a studio in, in Paris,、uh, which was run by the、um, Brizzy, Brizzy Brothers. And、um, they, they were working on quite a few projects. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting for the first time. Of, um, of Disney artists who are really close to home,、um, so it would be interesting to to get to know them. So I、uh, I arranged to actually interview the the Brizzy Brizzy brothers,、uh, and so I was 16 and I conducted my first interview、uh, at, at that time. And it was good because it was in French and I didn't speak、um, very good English、uh, at, at that point. And I got a friend to translate the interview, and that that was released in、uh, in a magazine called Animation Magazine, which still、uh, still exists today.、Uh, and so that 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 was the first time I I met I met with some of the artists, and and that was very very exciting. I started realizing that that、um, there was a lot more to Disney than what 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 I had seen since I was a kid, and and those artists like started to really fascinate me,、um, and and that never ceased. That's fantastic, and it seems like it's all led up to your new book. And it just came out last year from Chronicle Books, and it's "They Drew as They Pleased: The Hidden Art of Disney's Golden Age." Now, the first book is based on the 1930s. It's it's really quite fantastic, and I know there are going to be a few more in the series. I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit more about it. Yes, that that that's right. So that's the first in a series of six books. Uh, so so the, the first one focuses really on the 1930s, and then book two and three. Are going to focus on the 1940s because there's so much that was going on at, at that time that one book was not enough,、uh, and in fact the third book is is going to be a bit uh, uh, thicker than the than the first two,、uh, and then、um, and then the fourth book is going to focus on the 1950s and 60s.、Uh, the、um, the fifth book is going to be on the on the 70s and 80s, and then, and then finally the the last one is going to be.、Uh, Uh, about the 90s and and、uh, almost to to this to this day,、uh, so that's 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 the plan for the series. And and so the, the first volume obviously has just been released. It's uh, uh, they drew as they pleased the hidden art of Disney's golden age that was released back in September.、Um, I was yesterday evening I was、uh, correcting the、uh, the final galleys for、uh, for volume two, which is going to be called.、Uh, Um, the, the hidden art of、uh, Disney's musical musical years,、um, and and then、uh, I'm hard at work, obviously, on writing uh, uh, volume three, which is going to be published next year in 2017. So、um, there's lots lots 
uh, of work still to be done, but but millions and millions of, of discoveries in, in the process. Or Disney's animation art. It, it's really the uh, what I'm trying to do is um, a very good in-depth story of the um, of the concept artists, uh, the, the people who were uh, creating all of those designs that then inspired uh, the uh, um, the layout artists, the background artists, the the animators, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and so I'm not, not really discussing any of the artists who work in layout, any of the, the, the actual animators. What I'm really focused on are, are those, those, those artists, which we call today concept artists that were really, uh, both story artists and character designers and, and so on and so forth. And, and that, uh, that drew, uh, as the title says, that, that drew as they pleased, that really, Created very blue sky concept, blue sky ideas, and then morphed into what what we see on on the screen today. That's great. And one of the many things I like about this book is that it doesn't retread really over what other historians like John Kaymaker have done with their books, and that all the information is really brand new. And even the artwork, I believe that practically all of it isn't from the Disney archives, the ARL, and that it's from private collectors and from the families of the artists featured themselves. Yes, yeah, so, so, so that's correct. So, and, and if you take uh, volume one, uh, you'll, you'll see that about 80% of the art or 85% of the artwork that's included in the book has, has never been seen before. It's never been released in book form before. Um, and, and that's, uh, we're talking about more than 400 pieces of artwork that, uh, and, and, uh, Huge part of that, again, 80, 85% has never been seen before. And as far as the text, I mean, that's the beauty of having researched this history for 30 years and, and owning, uh, every single book that, that has ever been released on, on this history is the fact that because I know everything that, that has been said, that has been written on the subject, uh, I can take that as, as a stepping stone and, and try and go further. Uh, and so the text itself, uh, about, um, I would say 70, 75% of the information is information that has never been released before. And, and it's based on a lot of documents that have been uh, recently uncovered, uh, or, or things that, uh, that had never been used, uh, uh, to, to, to build a text like this one before. And so that, that's in volume one. And in volume two, um, I, I would say that we're there close to 90% of the artwork which has never been seen before, uh, just because I, uh, in the process of researching volume two, I discovered uh, two major collections uh, in, in private hands. Uh, in fact, the, the son of, of Rita Scott had one of those two collections, and the, the daughter of Sylvia Holland, who is another artist who's covered in volume two, had also a huge collection of, of artwork. And, and therefore, um, a large part of, of volume two is based on artwork which is not um, at the Disney, at Disney's Animation Research Library, not at the Disney Archives, but really in, in private hands. Wow. Well, the book is about the 1930s, and of course, at the very beginning, 1928, we have the creation of Mickey Mouse, who is an instant success, and with that, wants to keep innovating. However, this is the same time as the Great Depression, so Disney are pretty much the only place that's hiring anybody. So we have this influx of new talent and all these artists from, from Europe, four of whom are in the book. Um, and if you, if we could, I'd like to talk a bit more about these. So the first one is Albert Herter, who's a Swiss artist. We have Ferdinand Hovarth, who's Hungarian. Gustav Tengren, who is Swedish. And Bianca Majoli, who's Italian. And my first question is, with these brand new European artists, 
How impactful do you think they were on the studio and the ideas that were generated? And just with their tastes and how they influenced other artists. So they were they were extremely impactful. I mean, especially if you take um, Albert Harper and, and Gustav Tengren, uh, you, you you can see their influence very very clearly on on movies like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs uh, when it comes to Albert Harper, and Pinocchio when when it comes to both uh, Harper and, and Tengren. Uh, they really really influenced the style uh, and the background and and the layouts uh, in in a tremendous way. And, and Albert Herper was, was very familiar with, with a lot of the German artists, uh, German artists, uh, German illustrators, and he introduced quite a few of them, uh, including Hermann Vogel and, and a few others to, uh, uh, to Disney and, and, and to the artists at, at the studio. Um, and, and, and Tengren uh, obviously also brought his style and, and his ideas and his designs to, uh, um, to those, uh, especially to those two movies, uh, and of course he was also. I mean, when you talk about Tengren, uh, he was also inf- influential on some of the city symphonies, especially on the Old Mill, uh, that that very revolutionary city uh, symphony, which was the, the first use of the, the multiplane camera. Uh, so th- those those two were tremendously influential. Um, Ferdinand Horvath yeah. and and Bianca Majoli, I would say, were were less influential, uh, but, but their designs are so absolutely fascinating uh, that, that they deserve to be to be better known. Uh, uh, it's just, I mean, if, if you take the designs for, for Ferdinand Horvath for that uh, uh, for that short cartoon which was which was abandoned in the end called uh, Nikki and the Sea Serpent, um, you see hundreds of designs of that of that uh, uh, Loch Ness monster of that. Uh, uh, of that sea serpent, uh, which are just one is more fascinating than than the next, and 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 it's it's endless. Uh, and and by looking at the art of of, of someone like Horvath, you also follow all of the paths that that in the end didn't uh, didn't um, um, end up on the screen in a way um, of projects that that were abandoned in in mid stage. But but what's great is that you then see uh, all of the ideas that Walt was uh, toying with. Uh, you see all of the things that that he liked, and you also see all of the things that he didn't like, uh, and and that's that's extremely important to understand the, the whole creative process. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, taking that the time machine and and going back to the 1930s and 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 uh, looking over the shoulder of of those artists and 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 try and be there to uh, to understand what was really going on at at that time. Mm-hmm. And now from your book, um, reading about Albert Herter. He was essentially the first concept artist at Disney. Yes, he, he was. He was. What, what basically happens at, at that point is, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, this is happening in the 1930s, and, and therefore uh, this is right in the middle of the Great Depression. Now, what's going on is uh, you have all of those artists in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. that are unemployed. And one of the only places in the world uh, that that hires is the Disney Studio. And not only does the Disney Studio hire artists, but but what they do, what they produce, is, is actually uh, exciting. Uh, it's not 
uh, painting murals for school, it, it's actually doing something that's, that's going to be seen by millions and which is uh, creating a new art form. And so you have hundreds and hundreds of artists that, that go to the Disney studio to, to try and find work. Uh, and some of them are better suited than, than others. Now, obviously, that, that gives Walt a fantastic opportunity because he can choose the best of the best of the best, and that's what he does. And he chooses the best of the best from the U.S., but he also chooses the best of the best from outside of the U.S. And and that's where our four uh, four concept artists from from the one come in. Now, at some point in the 1930s, uh, around 1930-1931, Walt realizes that if he wants to push the art of animation further, if he wants to uh, still be a leader, uh, he needs to start doing things differently. Uh, and so um, uh, he has that artist Albert Harper, which is. A fairly good animator, but not a great animator, but, but which has a, a sense of creativity which, which is unheard of, which draws and draws and draws all the time and draws things that when, when you look at them, you're like, oh my god, uh, um, psych- psychiatrist w- would have a ball with this. This is just absolutely incredible. He just uh, draws everything that, that he's uh, conscious and subconscious, uh, uh, lets him access in his brain. And so, uh, uh, it, it, it's really, I mean, you talk about surrealistic drawings before surrealism, uh, talk about uh, drawings that go in, in directions unexplored before. I mean, you have it all with, with, with Albert Harper. And so Walt sees that, and, and the, he's lucky because he sees that at some point where he just signed a new distribution contract uh, with a new distributor, and therefore he has a bit more money to play with. Uh, he's not uh, as, as tight, uh, his budgets are not as tight as they were before, and so he can afford to have one person in his studio uh, that's not immediately productive, immediately uh, uh, producing things that can be used right away, but who can create and create and create. And, and in fact, um, in one of the story meetings around Alice in Wonderland, which is one of the projects that Walt was doing with uh, at the end of the 1930s, uh, Walt says, Oh, we, we, we could maybe use all of those crazy ideas that, that Albert Harper drew many years ago and that we, we never knew what to do with. Uh, and, and obviously what's funny is that uh, Alice in Wonderland is released uh, almost uh, 10 years later. Uh, in fact, 10, more than 10 years later. Uh, and, um, and, and, and Albert Harper by then has been dead for, uh, for, for more than 10 years when, when Alice is, is released. Uh, and his, his ideas that he drew in the 1930s are then used in the movie that's released in the 1950s. Um, so that tells you how, how forward-looking Walt was uh, at, at that time and, and, and how, uh, um, how really exciting it is to discover all of those, uh, all of those uh, crazy drawings that, uh, um, that sometimes were used for close to 20 years. Well, now to gather the information and the piece of artwork you need for the book, I imagine it would take quite a bit of detective work on your part, through auctions and private collectors. For instance, with Ferdinand Hovath, you have his diaries that he kept throughout his entire life, including his time at the Disney studio. Is it hard to try and find this information and track it down, and, and obviously to find relevant information that you need for the book? So it is, it is obviously very difficult to find, but that's, that's actually, that's, that's the really, really exciting part of that project. Uh, it is, as you say, detective work. Uh, from the start, my idea was to, to, to say, okay, well, what's, what's the best way to, um, to be there? What's the best way to, uh, uh, 
um, we can't build a time machine, so I can't uh, I can't build a time machine and then take all of the rebuilds back with me uh, to the 1930s or 1940s. But there is one thing that's the closest to that is to um, is to hear the story uh, from the people themselves, the people who were there. Well, the, the issue obviously is that uh, all of the artists that I was covering in this book uh, are dead. Uh, and so what's the closest thing you have to, to this? Well, one, one thing is uh, if there are interviews with them that, that exist, that, that, that still exist. Well, that's one way of, of doing it. But unfortunately, again, especially with Albert Herter and Ferdinand Horvath, there are no interviews with them. Um, so what's the next best thing? In fact, what's even better than, than interviews? is to have primary documents, documents that were written at the time, that were written in the 1930s by those artists. And so two things I was especially trying to track down were uh, letters, correspondence, and uh, and diaries. So if I could find letters, if I could find diaries, then, then I would have the time machine. And I would be able to board the time machine and to go back, back to the 1930s. And so... The first thing that, that a historian does when, when he does his work well is to say, okay, well, what has been written about this subject and also what, what has, what has the, um, what have the previous authors already researched? So what had been written uh, already about the concept artist was, uh, was that book, a wonderful book by John Kenmaker called Before the Animation Begins. So that's where I started. I started um, rereading before the animation begins, and and the other thing I did, which is one of the things I liked most, was go through the end notes and and trying to understand what the sources uh, of um, John were. So I looked at all of the end notes, studied all of the end notes, and realized that a lot of the uh, documents that John Kingmaker had gathered were uh, preserved in New York um, at New York University. So I got a volunteer to go to New York University and to um, and to uh, send me copies of all of the documents that, that Sean had preserved from his own research 20 years ago. And then I started reading very carefully every single one of those documents. And when I came to uh, the interviews that John had conducted um, about Ferdinand Horvath, one of the things I realized is that um, there was one um, uh, one track, one um, one avenue that uh, that John hadn't followed, um, uh, um, investigation route that he hadn't followed, um, and and probably because uh, the te- technology at the time, 20 years ago, wasn't what it is now. The internet wasn't developed, uh, and and it was much more difficult to track down people. So what was happening in in that that interview that I was reading is that someone was telling John, you know that Ferdinand Horvath's widow um, a few years ago sold um, Ferdinand's, Ferdinand's diaries to, um, to a bookseller in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. And, and that person who was telling that to John also said to John, um, well, and this is the name of the bookseller. So I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. So there are diaries of Ferdinand Horvath that, that existed 20 years ago. I, I need to track those. I mean, this is pure gold. This is the time machine. So, uh, but 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 at the same time, I was telling myself, I, 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 this is going to be really difficult. Uh, this was that interview was conducted 20 years ago. The, the diaries were probably sold about 22, 23 years ago. So that trail is probably completely freezing cold by now. So. Um, that's uh, but, but but at the same time I wouldn't be me if I didn't at least try. 
So I contacted a good friend of mine who's really good at tracking down people, and I said, well, this is the name of the bookseller, and uh, this is the latest information I have about him, uh, which is from 20 years ago. Is there any way you can track him down or see if his bookstore still exists and so on? So he, uh, about a week later, he um, tells me, you know, the, the, the bookshop doesn't exist anymore, but I actually found his um, private contact details. Uh, here is his phone number. So I... Uh, I call, and uh, uh, when I call, I um, I get to an answering machine, and I leave a message. And I forget about it, because I'm like, okay, well, this is this is probably going to need my way, but at least I've, I've done everything I could. About a week later, I was on a trip to uh, to Mexico for work, and uh, between two meetings, I get uh, I get a phone call from a number that I don't recognize. So I, I pick up, and the person on the line tells me, well, I'm Suanto, and I'm the son of the person, the bookseller, to whom you, you left a message last week. Uh, and I, oh, oh, thank you very much for calling me back. Uh, <laughs> is your father, is your father still alive? And he says, yeah, actually, he's, he's with me right now. Uh, oh, this is wonderful. Does he, does he by any chance, does he still have the, the, the document? And, and the guy tells me, yes, actually he does. And he preserved them for all of these years. Wow. And he's actually interested in selling them. Oh, and by the way, uh, on top of diaries, which is what you contacted us for, um, there is also quite a bit of correspondence uh, from 1933, uh, in which clearly, from what we can tell, because it's in Hungarian, uh, from what we can tell, the correspondence, contains a lot of information about his work at Disney because we can recognize works like Disney and uh, Disney Studio and and some of the, the names of his colleagues and so on and so forth. And now I thought, this is incredible, this is fantastic. So I bought, I bought that whole collection, uh, which, to be honest, wasn't cheap, but it was at the same time such a treasure trove that I had to do it. So I bought all of that, and there was one added complication, which is that I got all of the diaries, which is uh, which span uh, about uh, 30 years of Ferdinand Horvath's life, 35 years. And he was very meticulous. He would uh, he would write down what he had done during the day, uh, every single day and evening. Uh, not in great details, but you would know where he was, what he had oh, done, wow. what he, were, he had worked on, and so on, every single day of his life. There was one other complication, though. All of the diaries, for some reason, were in German. Um, um, although he was Hungarian, he um, kept his diaries that he saw the first half of his life in German. And then uh, all of his correspondence with his wife from 1933 was all in Hungarian. <laughs> so I uh, so I got um, a friend to uh, to translate the relevant parts from the diaries, uh, and I got um, two friends from Hungary to uh, translate all of the correspondence. And that's uh, that's what I used to uh, to build the chapter about all that. And and needless to say, ninety uh, percent of the information in there, or ninety five percent of the information in there, is brand new. And what what makes it best is that it's all written by Ferdinand Horvath himself. Uh, he uh, he's basically telling us what he's living through day after day after day. And obviously, I all I put all of that in context and. Uh, and and give the, the the big picture to the reader so that we don't get stuck with purely Ferdinand's view, which which is obviously very subjective. 
so that, that's what I did for volume one for that chapter on turning on Horvath. And, and the same thing is true uh, when it comes to volume two, where there is a, a whole chapter on you know, on an artist called Celia Holland, uh, which is one of the most important artists of, of volume two. And, and when I um, went to the house of the daughter, uh, I knew I would find quite a bit of artwork, um, although I never imagined I would, I would find the treasure trove that, that we found. Uh, but the thing that most excited me when I arrived there is that uh, when we opened one of those uh, closets where, uh, where the material was preserved, I, I saw three big folders. Uh, and when I opened those folders, um, I saw that it was also a correspondence uh, catalogued by date. Uh, and so all of the correspondence was with her brother, uh, who was living in Canada at the time, and she was in Los Angeles, all of that correspondence survives. And so she's writing to her brother. So some of the letters are really not interesting for us because it deals with uh, monetary issues and uh, and bank transfers and stuff, stuff like that. So that's irrelevant. But then there is a lot of information in those letters that deals with what's happening in the studio, what project she's working on. And, and some of the projects we knew she was working on, but some of the projects have complete revelations. Uh, in fact, some of the projects are, are projects we had never heard of before. And, and we found uh, information about those projects. Like, for example, she was working at some point in the 1940s on um, connecting segments for uh, Make My Music, uh, that, that package feature. And, and those connecting segments were going to be based on, uh, on the whole adventure with the uh, Greek muses. Uh, and, uh, and, and there was a whole elaborate story written about that. And a lot of artwork created for that. Uh, and so we discovered the artwork. Uh, we discovered the, the, the story behind it. Uh, and, and you have her discussing it in detail in, in her letters. And so you, you know also what she felt about the project. You know also what, um, what she was, uh, uh, trying to develop uh, what worked in her mind and what didn't work, uh, and so you're, you're literally there with her. You're you're there in her mind. You're there looking over her shoulder. You're you're again taking a time machine and uh, and um, and 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 sitting in her office and uh, and just um, looking at everything she was doing, which which I think is the most fascinating part of all of this. That's great. I, mean, I can't. I can't wait for the second book. And you did a similar thing with um, Gustav Tangren. Like, I think he's probably the most famous out of the four in the first book, mostly from his work with Pinocchio. But there was apparently no artwork for the Sorcerer's Apprentice done by him that was found. But you found a Leica reel. Is that correct? Yes. So, so that's correct. The, um, the the first thing I found, which was wonderful, is a, a good friend of mine, um, knowing that I was working on the chapter by Gustav Tengren, sent me the only known interview of, of Gustav Tengren, uh, and uh, the only interview in which he discusses his work on on Disney projects. And when I was reading that interview, I, I realized that I had examples of uh, everything he was discussing in the interview, except for one project, which was the uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And I was like, oh, this is this is going to be really frustrating not not to have that. But what can we do? I mean, no one has found uh, anything around that project uh, until now by Gustav Tengren. So maybe we won't have any artwork uh, from that project in, in the book. And then uh, about two or three weeks before um, everything had to be finalized in, in the book, um, there was a dealer in, in Los Angeles who told us, oh, um, 
Oh, you're in Los Angeles. I want to show you something. I think that might, that might be of interest. I've just found a few Leica reels. Now, Leica reels are like storyboards on, on film, uh, very early storyboards. Uh, and so, um, so I said, oh, wow, this is great. I uh, would love to see those. And if you would allow us to scan, uh, scan them, that, that would be even better. So, uh, so he did. He, he had, uh, he had a few from Fantasia, uh, including one from The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And when uh, we started going through it, um, what I realized, uh, is that a few of the drawings on that Leica reel were 99.9% certainly by Gustav Lendren, uh, and those are the ones that are, that are in the book, uh, uh, and they are quite amazing, uh, and they are the only known examples of uh, Gustav's work on, uh, on, on the Sorcerer's Apprentice. So that, that was very, very, very exciting. Oh, that's incredible, because Leica reels are notoriously hard for, for preserving. Like, I think even the ones that Disney have, a lot of them have been destroyed just because they the materials that they're made out of just don't last very long, which is incredible that you found that. Yeah, we, we, we found four of them, or that dealer found four of them, and uh, and contained some really, really cool materials, especially the one on the software apprentice. And I think Gustav's work um, is so referenced by artists today as well. Like even the movie Tangled, you know, is based a lot on, on his artwork from Pinocchio. So it's it's incredible how influential these artists not only had at the time but have had um, overall in the Disney canon. Um, the the final artist that's in the book is um, Bianca Mijali, Um and she was hired in 1935 as the first story artist. Is that right? She was uh, hired in 1935. Yes, as the first um, the first woman in the story department as the first story artist. That's correct. Mm-hmm. She was the first woman to work in the story department. And, and I mean, that, that was the other thing. I, we've, we've known for years as Disney historians that there were quite a few women that, that worked in creative positions in the 1930s. And, and so obviously, uh, uh, it infuriates us when we, we hear yeah, someone, uh, uh, yeah, say that, uh, that Disney was, um, was anti-women or, uh, didn't consider women uh, clever enough to work in, in story or things like that. That just just drives us nuts. And uh, and so I wanted to make sure that in, in that book series, I showed very concretely just not just selling it, but 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 showing that there were a lot of women that worked in creative positions at, at Disney in the 1930s. And so the, the chapter on Bianca Majoli is is really a chapter also about. Some of the women that that worked uh, in creative positions in the mid uh, mid to late thirties at at the Disney Studio, and so you have you have Bianca Majoli, of course, which is the main focus of the chapter, uh, but you have a writer called Dorothy Anne Blanche, um, and and you have um, you have a few other artists whose whose work I'm, I'm discussing. You you also have um, uh, another artist. Uh, uh, who's called Grace Huntington, who was um, uh, mostly again a story artist and, and a writer, uh, and so those are the, the ones I wanted to cover in that book because those are the ones that were um, there early at, at the studio. And then in Volume Two, you have even more of them, and, and you have in fact two major chapters in Volume Two about um, women artists. Uh, one of them is uh, Sylvia Holland, which we just discussed a few moments ago, and she would. Uh, if the war hadn't happened and if the strike hadn't happened, she would have become uh, 
the first um, director at Disney uh, to be a woman. Um, oh, wow. uh, and uh, but unfortunately, uh, that happened, and, and that that stopped her career. Sure. But she was completely, I mean, she, she, she worked on so many different things and she uh, worked in so many different areas and so on. And she would, she, she was clearly, clearly the group to, to become a director. Uh, and, and then the, um, the other major artist that, that I'm discussing in volume two, who's very little known, um, is a person called Retta Scott. Now, Rita Scott, you have probably heard about her as the first uh, Disney animator. Yeah. Which is right. Which is right. This is one of the, her claims to fame. But, but the reality was is... Was it Bambi? She... Yes. She, uh, she started, yeah. she, she animated on Bambi. She animated uh, a sequence with the, the mad dogs, with the dogs uh, pursuing Saline uh, uh, in, in Bambi. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so that, that was her, uh, her major scene um, in terms of animation. But, but the reality is that 95% of Rita Scott's career at Disney uh, wasn't really in animation. It was really in story. Uh, it was really creating storyboards. It was really creating story ideas. It was really being a concept artist. And so that's the part of the story that has never been told before. And it's, it's an incredibly fascinating story. And, and, I basically uncovered uh, about 150 pieces of artwork that she had developed at the time that had, had never been seen before or that nobody knew existed. Um, in fact, the family, when I contacted them, had no idea that they had that artwork. And it took me uh, weeks and weeks and weeks to get them to go and look. And then, so that, that's actually a funny story. Yeah? So, so I contacted the son and I, I told him that you have... Uh, do you have anything related to your mother's uh, mother's uh, work um, for the studio? He says, "No, no, not 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 really. I I, I do have a few uh, pages of autobiography, and that's about it." I'm like, "Okay, well, autobiographical notes. That's that's really really important for me. So please, please send those to me. So send those to me. I read those, and and they were really interesting. Um, and one of the most interesting things in those, frankly, aside from the description of how she became an animator." how she entered the studio, how she worked on story and so on. The most interesting thing for me was that she says that at some point, uh, so in 1946, she leaves the studio and and starts just becoming um, a housewife for 30 years. Uh, but then 30 years later, she uh, she gets a divorce and she decides to go back to animation. So in the 1980s, she goes back to some uh, to animation, obviously not at Disney at that time, but in, in some small studios. And I'm like, okay, this is really great, because if she did that, then there must be people uh, still around that knew her and that worked with her. So I tracked those down, and I interviewed them. And one of them tells me, you know, Didier, there's something really interesting. One day, she came to the studio, and she came to the studio with a wonderful mock-up for a book that she was working on when she was at Disney in, in 1941 as, as a personal project. Um, on a plane uh, that, that that was um, that had eyes and everything, and I like literally like the concept of planes uh, that 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 then uh, Disney picked up wow. with. Uh, and um, she was working on that with animator uh, Willie Reitelman. I'm like, oh really? And 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 that person tells me, yeah, and and that that mock-up for that book was just absolutely wonderful, and the book wasn't published, but the mock-up was just stunning. And I, oh wow, this is really exciting. So I, <laughs> I email um, uh, Reda Scott's phone and I say, uh, so you, you told me you had nothing, but do you, have, do you have any idea of that book? Have you ever heard about that book? And so on. he's like, 
oh yeah, of course, I have that book. I'm like, oh my God. So he sent me some photographs <laughs> of the book and, and they're amazing. Oh, and wow. so I think to myself, I'm like, okay, so this is really interesting. So he told me a few weeks ago that he had absolutely nothing and now he has this book. So what else does he have that, that he doesn't realize? So I, um, <laughs> Him another email. Are you absolutely certain you you don't have anything else? Um, really... And and so about a week later, he says, you know, now that I think about it, I, I might actually have in the attic a few uh, a few story drawings from Bambi, but I I didn't think that was relevant. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, this is really really relevant. <laughs> so send him an email back, really excited, say, yeah yeah yeah, absolutely, this is relevant, and not only is it relevant, but historically speaking, it's really important because that's the first project she worked on at the studio. She was first working on storyboards on Bambi before uh, moving for a little while to to animation, and so he said, oh yeah, really, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and look. So uh, about a week later, he comes back and he says. You know, I've, I've looked and, and there is actually a little bit more than what I thought. <laughs> there was quite a little bit more. <laughs> it, was, oh, wow. <laughs> it was about 150 original drawings from so many different projects, filling so many historical gaps, including projects we had never heard of before. But then when we found those pieces, then a lot of things started to make sense in photographs, in things that, that the Disney studio had and so on. And we we're just able to connect. I was just able to connect all of the pieces. And it's just the, the chapter um, takes a completely new dimension. And then you... You start understanding her sources of inspiration. I tracked down some of the, some of the books she was using as reference at the time. And, and again, uh, then, then, then the, the, the doors of the time machine open and, and you, and you step in and you're there with her. <laughs> That's fantastic. Like, do you find that a lot that people have these kind of hidden treasure troves of like artwork in their attic or their basement or closets and they just don't know? how significant and valuable they are? Some do. It's hit and miss. Uh, but, 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 but yes, I mean, there is a, there's another story, again, for Volume 2, which was, for me, the best story, uh, uh, the, the best thing that happened to me in Volume 2. So Volume 2, uh, I'm going to try and make a long story short, but basically for Volume 2, there was this one artist which I'm covering in Volume 2 called David Hall. And, and David Hall always fascinated me. Uh, because his drawings on Alice in Wonderland and his drawing on Peter Pan are just absolutely stunning and gorgeous and, and some of the best stuff ever created by the Disney studio. And he was way ahead of his time and, uh, and those ideas weren't really used at that time, but they are, they are just, it's just beautiful, beautiful pieces of artwork. Now, we know a lot of what, uh, David Hall has created for, for uh, Alice in Wonderland. That's that's no mystery, and a lot has been released, and a lot has been seen. Although I'm I'm trying to show more in the book and things that we haven't seen before. Um, the part which is a lot more mysterious in a way, or that had not been discussed as much in the past, was his work on Peter Pan. And um, the uh, the Disney Studio has quite a few pieces of artwork by David Hall for Peter Pan, but they are all from the the very start of the movie, when 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 the kids are in the nursery and when Peter visits the nursery uh, before they go to, go to Neverland, and um, we knew that there were um, a few pieces in private collections from from uh, when they go to Neverland, and we also knew from um, photostats from uh, sort of the um, 
what was um, the equivalent of photocopies at the time. We knew from Photostat that uh, David Hall had worked quite a lot on on um, on, on the sequences in Neverland. The issue was that uh, the photostats are in black and white, and so a lot of the artwork had never been seen in color for for those those sequences. So the first thing I did was I tracked down as many of those pieces as possible in in color, um, and I knew that some were in private collections. Thankfully. Some of them were um, in the hands of um, a good friend of mine called Pierre Lambert, um, and so he uh, he was happy to share those with me. But then when I was when I met Pierre, I was like, oh, what do you think is the, the rarest or the, the the most desirable piece of uh, artwork by David Hall that we have never seen?" And he says, "Well, without a doubt, the piece that we only know in black and white that that." we would all love to see in color and which would be the perfect cover for your book is uh, a piece where you have um, Peter and Wendy at the helm of the pirate ship at the end. And, and so it's uh, Peter at the helm and then Wendy helping him and then Nana in the background um, just um, uh, cleaning the ship uh, or helping clean the ship or something like that. And I, oh yes, that, that, would be, that would be fantastic. But nobody knew where, where that piece of artwork was. Um, about two weeks before um, I had to complete everything for Volume 2, um, I got a call from uh, from a friend of mine in, in Los Angeles who tells me, you know, Didier, I'm, I'm working on this other book project, and someone um, put me in touch with the son of such and such artist, and I don't think anyone has been in touch with him before, and apparently he has quite a big collection of, of artwork from his father, who has a a story artist, and he was the, he's the son of a fairly prominent story artist, and I'm not going to give the name because we need to respect his, his privacy. And so, um, and, and, and that person tells me that in his collection, he has a few David Holt, uh, but he doesn't know from what movie, and he doesn't know what, what they represent, and so on and so forth, but this is, this is really exciting. Um, I'm like, yeah, this is really exciting. And, uh, I'm like, but but we're like we like I only have two weeks like to, to uh, see the art and to get it to the, the publisher if there is anything interesting and so on and so forth. I'm like, okay, and is he in Los Angeles? She says, yeah, he's in Los Angeles right now, but uh, just for today, and then he's going back to his home in Atlanta. I'm like, oh wow, okay, this is interesting because obviously if he were in Los Angeles, I have quite a few friends there who could go there and, and scan the artwork. Atlanta, and then I think, oh yeah, oh my God, I, I do have a friend actually in Atlanta who's a really good friend who just moved there, who's a French uh, former colleague who just moved to Atlanta like six months ago. So I immediately called that that friend and I say, um, if um, if that artist or that that son of that artist says yes, would you be willing to go to his place and scan the whole collection? Says yeah, absolutely, I'll I'll do that for you, no, no problem. And so we then convinced the, the son of the artist to let us do that, and uh, and so my friend scans everything. And uh, at that point, I'm again on a business trip uh, the day when when he's doing that, and it's uh, when he completes everything. It's about 10:30 in the evening my time or something like that. And so um, so my friend says, well, I just scanned everything, so I'm going to send you everything now by. Uh, Dropbox or something like that. So he sent me uh, that link on Dropbox, and by, by then, 11 in the evening. But obviously, I can't wait. I can't go to sleep before I've seen what he has done. <laughs> and so, um, so obviously, the first folder I, I look at is a folder called Peter Pan. And uh, I go there, and I see uh, two pieces of artwork that says uh, 
and let's say Peter Pan David Holt. So uh, I'll open the first one, and it's a nice David Holt, but nothing really exciting. It's one uh, in the nursery, so um, we have seen quite a lot of those before and so on. So I said it's good, it's okay. And then the second one I open is a, is a is a beautiful one with Tinker Bell that that had never been seen before, and I would get really excited by that one because I know that that one is going to be in the book. But but that's that's great. So I'm, I'm, I think okay, well that that's wonderful. Uh, but and then I carry on looking at the the Peter Pan folder, but there is no other piece of artwork um, that says David Hall. But still, I, I carry on looking, and then I see one that says uh, Peter Ship. So I I open that. <laughs> And I stopped crying <laughs> because uh. <laughs> basically we had found uh, uh, the uh, the piece uh, which shows Peter and Wendy at the helm of the pirate ship, and uh, it had been stored in an attic for 40, 50 years, something like that. The person didn't know he had it, didn't know the importance, <laughs> the significance of that piece, and and more than anything else, I mean, seeing that piece in black and white is one thing. Seeing it in color, imagining it in color is another thing. Seeing it in color takes it to such another level that it's clearly, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like it's ten times better than what you would have imagined. So it, it's clearly uh, David Holt's masterpiece. And, and uh, thankfully the, uh, the, the publisher, uh, um, Chronicle Books, saw it also that way. And so that's going to be the cover of, uh, of Volume 2. And, and I literally got it two weeks before the, uh, everything had to be finalized. That's great. It, it, it seems very exciting to uncover all, all this hidden artwork. Um, do you collaborate, obviously you said you have, you know, some like dealers, but do you collaborate with other historians or collectors like John K. Maker or, or I guess like Andreas Deja has his blog, which is more about the, the animators, but it does have some work on like concept artists and, and layout artists and, and things. Yes, I, I absolutely collaborate with as many people as possible, and we exchange information, we exchange documents when it's when it's okay to do so. Um, we talk about what exists, what what we wish we could find, and then when someone finds something, then he informs his uh, um, quote unquote colleagues. And so, yes, absolutely, I'm always in touch with with as many people as possible, always looking, always searching. Um, it's not luck. I mean, luck is part of it, uh, but but you help uh, your luck quite a lot. Uh, you have to work a lot for luck to, to exist. Well, obviously, throughout the history of Disney, trends, tastes, and styles come and go, for instance, UPA. Um, but with specific artists, how influential are they themselves? Like, everyone kind of knows about Ivan Earl and Walt Paragoyne, Mary Blair, and even Salvador Dali, who came in, started to do the the short film Destino. How important are those individual artists at the time? Yeah, I, I think we're going to see that, especially in the 50s and 60s on, in, in book number four. Uh, when you have people um, that, 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 um, that start uh, uh, being quite influential, like people like Phil Moreb and John Dunn and, and people we have not heard that much about before, but, but that becomes fairly important at the studio in terms of design and stylization and so on and so forth. And obviously also Mary Blair. Uh, and, and all of, all, all of that is very important in the 50s and 60s. So yes, there is a clear change 
in approach to design that, that happens in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and then before that, we're more into um, classical uh, Disney look when it comes to the screen. But the, the reality is what we're going to see in, um, in Volume 2, but even more in Volume 3, is that there were always... The artists were always trying to find new uh, new ways of doing things, and especially with one uh, department at Disney that was created um, in the late 1930s, uh, and that lasted until 1941, which is the, uh, uh, the character model department. And the character model department was really uh, a brain trust, a think tank, uh, an area of the studio which was there to, um, to say, okay, we had those concept artists uh, in the 1930s, but they... They were all working a little bit on their own, or they were. That, why don't we put all of them together in one place and and shake that place up and and see what comes out of it? And so uh, that's what Joe Graham did. Uh, he uh, he started that department under obviously the, uh, the prompting of Walt, and and he got artists that were even better than the others uh, in the sense that that they had even more art education and that they were even more aware of what was going on in the art world. Um, outside of animation and in the rest of the art world, and they, they brought all of that to the, to the studio. They brought their knowledge of the rest of the world. They brought their knowledge of the other artists. They, worked, they brought their classical training to the studio, and out of that came uh, new ideas, came new ways of uh, designing things, came new ways of, of using uh, uh, the, the, the media, uh, came new ways of just... Um, of just um, approaching uh, all of those projects, and and that's that, that's really absolutely fascinating, and that that's why you have um, two books on the 1940s because there was so much creativity uh, at the studio and so much so many ideas going in so many directions and and so many uh, creative people uh, that that were there and that that are still unknown uh, to this day, um, which was served to be to be known. Absolutely. And I assume the closer you get to present day, the easier it is to identify which artist created which piece of artwork. Because going all the way back to the 1930s, it might be difficult, especially since Disney artists weren't supposed to sign their work. Yeah, so, so that's correct. So that's also a big part of the investigation, is to try and understand who did what. So sometimes it's very easy. And sometimes when there is a very specific style, like Gustav Tengren's style, it, it's quite easy to... Uh, uh, to understand what he did and what he didn't do, and also he, even though they weren't supposed to sign their their, their art, he uh, had a tendency to sign quite a lot of his art. Um, so, so that's true. Uh, but then, and, and then you have other artists who, uh, when you start studying them and studying them and studying them, you then start to understand what their yeah. style was. And uh, and others, others, it's a lot more difficult. So you, uh, if you're lucky, uh, some of the artwork was preserved by the family. Uh, but if you aren't, then unfortunately, um, it's difficult to say what they did, and therefore it's difficult to focus on them. And so I do have a few artists that, that are in that category, which I hope someday I'll be able to write something about them, but, but for now I had to, uh, I could not include them because, um, I couldn't tell, I couldn't recognize enough of their artwork to uh, make it worthwhile to have a chapter about them. So that's, that's very sad. And, this project in itself is is very long. It's a it's it's six books in total. So how do you is it mainly the artwork that has never been seen before? That's what you put in. Like, is it hard to kind of 
know, choose what to put in and what to leave out? Well, in, in a sense, but, but again, you're right, you're spot on. I, I'm trying to include mostly things that have not been seen before. Because why do another book with things that we have seen in, in so many times uh, in the past? And same thing for the text. Why, why would I write a text if it's to just repeat uh, what we already know? Um, why waste paper and, and trees and, and everything to, to do that? So <laughs> the idea is to really try and, 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 uh, and, uh, contribute new things a quick question um what's your favorite period of disney art artwork and do you have a, a favorite disney feature so those are two very different questions um i, I think my two two favorite features are snow white and the seven dwarfs and jungle book okay uh so <laughs> at the two extremes <laughs> um from an artistic standpoint i think it's extremely tough for me to say because I'm fascinated by the end of the 1930s and beginning of the 1940s just because so much happened at that time. And, and clearly, uh, the book I most wanted to write is, is what's becoming now volume three of that series, which is the book on, on the character model department, uh, because so much was going on in that department and because the artists who worked there were so interesting in themselves at, at the personal level and at the professional level. So that, that's, that's for me the most exciting part. That being said, I love, 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 love Disney's golden age of the 1930s and, and all that and Herper. I just two of the artists that most fascinate me. And then the reality is I grew up as a kid with movies that like Robin Hood and like the Aristocats, which were produced after Walt died. And frankly, <laughs> I'm one of the people who actually enjoyed those movies. I enjoyed them uh, too. <laughs> and so, and so I, I, I became fascinated by the artwork of Ken Anderson, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I can't wait uh, till, till the moment I come to start writing and researching um Volume 5, the one which is going to be focused on Ken Anderson and Mel Show, uh, because both of them uh, are just artists that, that fascinate me um, without end, and we have not seen enough artwork of those two artists, and there's so much still to discover, uh, so much still to see, and, and, and their art for me, especially their character designs when it comes to... Uh, to Ken Anderson and, and, and the mood pieces when it comes to male show are so great, are so um, inspiring that, that, that that's also a, an era that I really, really want to, uh, to focus on in depth. And that, so that, that, that's one of the reasons why, why I didn't choose to write one book um, on one specific era, uh, but, but to really have mm -hmm. uh, a series of six books uh, on the whole on the whole story of those those different concept artists, because I find something fascinating, exhilarating in each and every one of those uh, periods of time. Um, and you you were saying, yeah, it's it's a long project. Yeah, it's it's a long project. Yeah, it's six books, so six years. Uh, the, the reality is that I love those long in-depth projects. Uh, you may know that I edit a, a book series. Uh, which is short text, uh, which is called Waltz People. Mm -hmm. And Waltz People is, is a collection of books, uh, is a collection, uh, is a series of books that collect interviews that were conducted with Disney artists. So not, not all of the interviews were conducted by myself. In fact, a lot of them in each volume 
like 95% of them in each volume, were conducted by other historians uh, throughout the years. And the whole idea was, well, what happens when those historians are no longer with us, uh, or when the tapes deteriorate? Or when... So we need to get those interviews preserved as soon as possible, because otherwise historians who will want to do what I'm doing right now won't have the material to do it. Uh, and so um, 11 years ago, I started that, that book series, and uh, uh, Volume 17 has just been released. And so talk about uh, long-term projects. <laughs> I still think I have about 10 more years in front of me oh, wow. uh, on that project, at least, uh, and, and probably about uh, 10 to 15 more volumes. So um, that's another very uh, long-term project. But that makes it fun because you go really in-depth and then you stop connecting dots that had not been connected in the past and then and then it starts to all make sense. Well, you said there are six books in the series starting from the 1930s up to the present day. Whereas most films nowadays have their own art of book, so I was just wondering where you plan on on ending the series. Is it you know, the Lion King or Home on the Range or you know going or going into the CG features? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure yet. Okay. I'm not sure yet. Uh, I am not sure yet. It's going to depend in big part on what I find and uh, uh, on what artists I, I decide to focus on in the end. So I know that two of the artists that are going to be part of Volume. Uh, Six. One of them is going to be um, Joe Grant. Okay. Uh, and, and obviously, the great thing about Joe Grant is that you can talk about his work in the 90s, but you can also, uh, and I will also obviously discuss a lot his artwork in the 30s and 40s. So I'm going to be a bit cheating because it's <laughs> going to be on the 90s, but there will be artwork from the 1930s and 40s. But it's a great way to um, to uh, tie the whole circle in, in a way. Uh, and then the, the, the other artist is probably going to be discussed in Volume 6 is going to be Tim Burton, uh, just because uh, of his artwork on, um, on on some of the interesting projects from the uh, Well, actually, I, I don't know exactly where Tim Burton is going to be included, but, but Tim Burton is going to be uh, discussed in one of the books, uh, either in Volume 5 or Volume 6. We'll, we'll see. Uh, and, and then there are a few others, like Hans, Hans Packer, uh, who's, who's absolutely great, and who's going to be there. Um, he's going to be in that book, obviously, and and, and a few more, um, but, but the list hasn't been uh, uh, finalized yet, so I, I, I don't know. It's too far away in the future. Yeah, so it, that's just like five years away. So is it going to be one book a year? Is that the plan, to release one a year? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. The plan is one a year. So uh, Volume 2 is going to be released in September this year. And, and again, as I was mentioning earlier, I'm, uh, I'm correcting the final galleys right now, which means that basically in probably two weeks' time, uh, uh, the publisher is going to be able to send it to the printer. Well, brilliant. Well, I've kept you almost an hour and I don't want to keep you much longer. I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. Um, this is the first interview on our podcast and I've learned so much from this. And it's been really inspiring. And I cannot wait for the next five books to come out. That's a, that has been a real pleasure. And uh, just want to wish you a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And it was just great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the first episode of the podcast. I want to thank Didier again for taking the time to talk with me. And if you want to buy the books mentioned in this episode, which I highly recommend, you can find them on Amazon. Or you can check out our Tumblr at 2d3dpodcast.tumblr.com for links to Didier's books, John Kmaker's books, and also links to the Disney History blog and the Andreas Deja blog. We also have an image of the David Hall Peter Pan concept drawing in colour on the Tumblr post, so you can check that out as well. You can follow the 2D3D podcast on SoundCloud and also on iTunes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. We're also on Twitter at 2D3D, that's T-O-O-D-Y, 
T-H-R-E-E-D-Y. And you can find me on Twitter at Matt2D, that's M-A-T-T, the digit 2, D-E-E. I'm Matthew Robert Davis, and this has been episode one of the 2D3D podcast. 